Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Paige. And I'm Chris. And welcome to Animates. We have finally returned. You would think that COVID would give us more time, but in fact, the opposite has been true. But we are back, and today is the day. It has finally come. It's taken almost three years, but today we are going to talk about Adventure Time. An auspicious time, indeed. And a time that, honestly, it couldn't come at a more vital time in not only my life, but our country's lives. We could all use a little bit of fun, wacky adventure, I think. During these, during these trying times, (laughs) it actually, Um, go ahead. It actually feels weird because I just turned 30 yesterday. And so I'm sitting, thank you. I'm sitting here thinking about cartoons as a 30 year old. And it feels like, it feels right. I like having grown up. I don't know if this is a quality of millennials. I don't know. I bet there are plenty of older people who would also say, you know, the key to living a good life or staying young is to never stop playing around like you're a child or something. But I feel lucky that I'm able to do that in a way that also isn't seen as arrested development. So that's, I'm thankful for that. Sure. I don't talk too much about like the attitude to of the general public towards cartoons on this show. Um, and like there are definitely people who who don't get it and who think that cartoons are for children and especially cartoons that are specifically made with an intended audience of children are for children and that it's weird for adults to enjoy them. But I think that's something that's really changed in our society over the last 20 years or so. And I'm glad it's something that I really enjoy and I'm really invested in. And, um, you know, I'm glad that we can that we can do that. We can join it together and share it with you guys. So uh, we are this is a inflection point, I believe, the official terminology in modern animation. In many respects, we've led up to this. It's been three months I would also like to apologize to the people who listen to us. It has pretty much been my fault because I've moved and gotten and started a new job. And there was a time where COVID really just sort of sapped my desire to do things that required effort. So this is a lot of me being obstinate. And I feel like an editor who's had an article on my desk for six months and I... (laughs) I know it's there and I know it needs done, but I just haven't had the time or the energy to do it. So hopefully now I get it. And like, the thing is like all that stuff is out of your control. And I've also been struggling throughout COVID with, uh, you know, not really wanting to do anything that took any effort. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners have struggled with that on and off too. So if you're still in that place right now, like we're really happy to bring you something that we hope brings you a a little bit of joy. Yes, I'm excited. I'm excited to be doing it again. And what a good show to dip, dip the toe back in with. Uh, So yeah, this is really Adventure Time, which aired on Cartoon Network. If 
your head has been buried in the sand and you are unaware of what Adventure Time is. Adventure Time was a show that started airing on Cartoon Network um, at the same time that regular show, the last show that we talked about, began airing. So they are they are essentially sibling shows and mm-hmm. both really represent very, very similar trends, albeit manifested in very unique and different ways to a transition of not intentionally drawing in a larger adult audience, but it certainly had that effect. And serious storytelling, complex characterization, things that are absurd. Like, absurdism really took off with Mm -hmm. these two in terms of mainstream. Like, things have always been absurd, I guess, outside of (laughs) mainstream shows, but these really represent... Like, taking that into major networks, primetime programming sort of stuff. Yeah, I agree. Because there was, like, always absurdism on TV, and there was always absurdism in animation. But a lot of the... And, like, I guess, like, to a certain extent, really, like, all kids programming involves a level of absurdism. But a lot of the more explicit stuff was limited to shows like like Aqua Teen Hunger Force, which, you know, were pretty popular, but more niche and had a smaller audience. Whereas um, Adventure Time, especially, but also regular show, had huge audiences across a lot of age groups and demographics and really brought that type of absurdist storytelling into a more mainstream setting. It's actually an interesting question to consider why both of those shows didn't end up airing on Adult Swim instead. And it turns out, uh, after a little bit of digging, that one of the reasons that Cartoon Network didn't end up leveraging Adventure Time's adult audience was due to some weird like legal issues with Adult Swim. Like, they couldn't transfer the show for some reason. I don't That's interesting. I don't know exactly why that was, but it, it sounds kind of like there was some internal regulation that they had that didn't really allow them to move a property that had started on one part of its network onto another part of its network. That's really interesting. So it's like it starts out as a kid's show, and they realize they have a massive adult audience. Consider moving it to their adult programming block, but legally are unable to. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, because they're reported as saying that having the adult audi- audience is like gravy, but they can't really leverage it into merchandise and stuff for adults. So naturally, as a corporate entity... They, they're like, well, yes, this is artistically amazing, but we can't make money off of it. So it's not <laughs> really valuable to us. Yeah. Okay. So just like a little bit of housekeeping before we um, really start to dig into it. Um, so much like other shows that have just a lot of content, we're going to be splitting up our discussion of Adventure Time across a couple of episodes. It will actually be the most episodes that we've ever done on a single property because we're going to be doing two episodes, two seasons per episode. 
which and there are 10 seasons of Adventure Time, which means that we will cover Adventure Time across uh, five episodes. And uh, if you are a fan, you know that it it deserves it and it needs it. So in terms of our specific conversation about any kind of plot or character development that happens um, during this episode, we will be mostly limiting ourselves to things that happen during seasons one and two. We are not going to avoid allusions to future events because we're going to assume that most people have seen episodes like have seen at least the earlier seasons of Adventure Time. It, the series finished airing in 2018. It's been two years. If you don't want any spoilers, I recommend that you stop this recording and go watch Adventure Time and then come back. Yes, um, you know, upon rewatch, we've discovered a lot of allusions to uh, large events that happen later in the show, and we think it's worth um, mentioning those. So we will, without going into the context, mention big things that happen later in the series. So, you know, if you have not completed the series and don't want to hear that, I would recommend stop listening now, go watch the show, come back when you're done. This first episode, we're going to introduce a lot of the cast, and I think, in a way, I also am going to want to talk about certain ensemble characters. Like, I'm looking at you, Peppermint Butler, and we're not going to do as much of that, because a lot of the characters, like, there are new characters that are introduced, but... Like, a lot of it is we're following very similar characters as they develop throughout the ten seasons, and they age, and they change. So we can introduce them here, and then that'll allow us to chart them as we go further. Uh, in addition, just like, here's the show, here's who it was created by, all of that mm -hmm. basic demographic information. Um, yes. Adv Adventure Time, as I said, was a show that aired on Cartoon Network. It started in 2010, very close to when regular shows started, both of them being the trail being somewhat blazed by the misadventures of Flapjack. Mm -hmm. People from both from from that show eventually, which um, Thorpe also works on Adventure Time. His name yeah, pops up in the credits a, a lot. Thurp Van Orman was, I think, a creative director and filled a couple of other roles um, throughout at least the first two seasons of um, Adventure Time. And there are certain episodes in the first couple of seasons where, you know, I'm like, this is very Van Orman-y, you know, uh, Memories from Boom Boom Mountain, the sort of the roughhousing guys in that, like, that's a very Van Orman-y feeling thing, you know, just their presence. Um so you can see that he had influence on that. Um, but obviously the show was created by Pendleton Ward, who was a writer and artist for The Misadventures of Flapjack. Um, <clears throat> he originally created the show for one of Cartoon Network's many uh, animation... Well, actually it was Nickelodeon. It was a Nickelodeon animation incubator. And it became a viral hit on the internet. But Nickelodeon turned down Adventure Time twice um, before it was eventually picked up by Cartoon Network to be optioned into a full-length series 
premiering, as Chris said, in 2010. We've already alluded in the past to the fact that Nickelodeon done fucked up, and it was clearly, it, it clearly, from the outside, it appears to, as evidence that their, their network leadership was, how shall we say, like, short-sighted or piss poor. I will say that, I will say that a little bit, I suppose, to their credit, even Cartoon Network was surprised at the reaction to Adventure Time. And apparently in the early days, they had trouble understanding how to leverage the series and its popularity because it was a very different beast than its previous properties were. So even Cartoon Network was surprised. And in hindsight, perhaps perhaps Nickelodeon made the safe choice. But the safe choice really did not serve to trailblaze any... like. You never trailblaze by making safe decisions. And Nickelodeon's decline into like this insipid, bland network that mostly does forgettable live-action shows really encapsulates this idea that they're just kind of going with, this is the safe option. We'll continue doing SpongeBob. <laughs> we'll continue doing Fairly Odd Parents. And we're going to do a bunch of live action shows. Yeah. And, and it's, I think it really can't be overstated how massive and immediate a hit Adventure Time was. So. It premiered at the very tail end of my junior year of high school. And by the time I arrived at college, not even a year and a half later, it was already a massive cultural force. Its first season was a hit. Like that, it, it didn't take time for the show to gain traction. Yeah, people immediately loved it. People. And not just ch- children, adults too. Teenagers and adults just immediately were like, this is fantastic. This is something that we're really into. I vividly recall going home in college. My, my little brother would have been like in his, I think he was like nine, eight, eight to 10. And I was home from college. I had already started watching Adventure Time. Okay, I I will admit at sort of like, quote-unquote, intoxicated. Um, And somebody was like, hey, we should watch the show. And we did, and it was great. And I go home, and my little brother is watching Adventure Time, and I sit down, and I'm like, hell yeah, Adventure Time. First of all, it was something that we could both enjoy, I being a young adult and him being a kid. But my dad comes in, and he's like, you like this show? I'm like... Yeah, I like the show. What are you even talking about? Um, so I, I that experience for me encapsulates this fact that it was very popular with young adults, and perhaps for different reasons than it was popular with children, but it it bespoke like 
connecting to multiple different types of experience all at the same time, which is, yeah. I think, really important. That is an important defining quality of shows made during the, the quote-unquote, the renaissance. Remember what we, we called that last time. Yeah, the, the sort of animation renaissance. And I think that a lot of that's due to this sort of, we talked about this hassle of young animators who just, you know, just like in the, the you know, the, the Italian renaissance, right? You just get a passel of uniquely talented visionary people who interact with each other and make these really great things. You know, we've already mentioned that Thurup Van Orman, who was like, you know, one the sort of like elder of the group, right? <laughs> um, you know, he made Flapjack and he employed a lot of these uh, young guys. I mean, uh, J.G. Quintel was in college still when he was a creative director for Flapjack. And so then he helps Pendleton Ward, who also worked for him on Flapjack, get on his feet and get his own show started. And Pendleton brings a lot of his uh, peers and coworkers from Flapjack along with him. Uh, for example, Pat McHale is serves as creative director for quite a number of seasons of Adventure Time. He, you know, he also worked on Flapjack. He also worked on uh, a little bit on Regular Show. And he goes on to create Over the Garden Wall, which we've talked about. Um, and then there are a few other folks on there as creative directors who um, are like really talented people who just like haven't had the time to like make it themselves yet. You know, Adam Muto is creative director for a lot of the show, obviously very talented. And even smaller names like someone like Natasha Allegri, who was a storyboard artist for many seasons of uh, Adventure Time. She ended up being the one to write the Fiona and Cake comics. I think I think she might have even been the one to create those characters. And she is more well known as a comic artist. She's the creator and writer of the Nimona comics, which were sort of a viral hit on the internet. And you know, she's someone who I'm just like waiting to see what she does because she's clearly very talented. Um, but perhaps most famously. Rebecca Sugar started as a storyboard correction artist on Adventure Time and was immediately promoted to a storyboard artist and worked as a writer and animator on Adventure Time for a number of seasons until she went on to create and run Steven Universe, which is uh, another major animation renaissance program that we will be discussing in the future. Um Rebecca Sugar! Love Rebecca Sugar. What a hero. What a good human being. It's really fun because it's like you can you can see these influences of so something that people notice a lot is in an early episode in season one, which was actually produced a little bit later and aired earlier, but whatever, which is the uh the crystal gem apple episode that tree trunks wants to go into the scary dark for forest and eat the crystal gem apple uh and you know that in and of itself it's like okay the crystal gems and then finn is fighting a beast and he says he can't find its magic gem weak spot and it turns around and it has a big gem on it and he cracks the gem and, and defeats the monster 
And so obviously, if you have any familiarity at all with Steven Universe, those are concepts that are central to the workings of the Steven Universe universe. So it's clearly like, you know, she was seen as very promising by the by Pendleton Ward and the other people who were in charge on the show and allowed to have creative influence on Adventure Time very rapidly. And that's a place where it really stands out. Yeah, and I this sort of I love this animation genealogy, essentially. Mm-hmm. I also want to say that um Allegri, she also went on to create the show Bee and Puppycat. Oh, that is her. Okay, I was trying to remember. I'm like, what else did Allegri do besides Nimona? But she's the creator of Bee and Puppycat, yes. Um, which is very cute and fun. It's I like what I, I think like we also intend to talk about Bee and Puppycat. Yes. What I like about all of these people is that you can see hints of their style in the show that they go on to then distill into their own property, which they all share qualities, but they are unique to themselves. And I love that. I I love seeing those connections between these things. And it provides a lot of hope that people spawned not only from Adventure Time creatively, but now from Steven Universe, now that it's finished, from regular show, right? These people are going on to create new things and will continue to hopefully to do so throughout their careers. So we will have gen- like a generation of people making content like this that we get to look forward to. Yeah, it's a really great thing. Like, you know, I look down the list of uh, people who are involved in these shows and I see names that appear in again and again and again on these shows and I haven't seen them pop up by themselves yet, but I'm just waiting. You know, it's like, I know that like you are a very talented person and I really hope you get the opportunity to make your own stuff because I think it's going to be something that's great, you know? Um and I like, or even someone like Pat McHale, you know, the Fear Feaster episode, like he was clearly very involved at that episode. And at the beginning of the episode, there's this quote about like fear that's attributed to Pat McHale. <laughs> and even that you're like, well, okay, so Over the Garden Wall is a lot of it is about fear and dealing with fear. So that's clearly something that was like on his mind and that he was bringing into shows that he was working on with other people. You know, like you can really see people like you can see these creators balancing their ideas off one another and being given the room to to work on things under the supervision of someone who's maybe a little bit further along in their career or even who's a peer and just is like, yeah, you can use my show to like work on some of your stuff. Um, and it's clearly a really productive environment. Yeah, I. Pendleton Ward seems to, I, I always like to think, like, Pendleton Ward has his businessman shtick. Um, Fruit Van Orman yeah. does, like, muscly, gross stuff. And um, they, like, they just each have their own little thing that I seem to associate with them. And I love yeah, it. There's, like, a businessman that's hilarious in his dryness. I'm always, in anything, I'm like, where's Pendleton Ward? He has to be involved. Like, even Marceline's dad. Like, he's dressed in that crisp black suit with that red tie. And he's just very polite in his cruelty. That feels so, that feels so Pendleton Ward to me. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, and also something I want to point out is that the director of the, the director for all of Adventure Time was Larry Lakelater. And he might not be someone who's more of a notable name for us, but he's like a legend. Um, he has been working as an animator and director since 1975. He started with uh, Charlie Brown animation, and he's been involved in Chalk Zone, The Mighty Bee, Gravity Falls, Flapjack, Adventure Time, um, you know, like all like other stuff that's like less, you know, notable. Like he like the Fairly Yard Parents, Hey Arnold, all kinds of stuff. Um, he's currently directing Bee and Puppycat. He's he's just like a real legend. He's sort of like an elder statesman who has been involved in the industry for years and clearly brought like a level of polish and professionalism to the series. Yeah, I guess it's interesting that we focused so much on the new wave, the new blood that the old the old blood has taken a backseat almost as if I think in myself the assumption is is that older animators are more static or less less revolutionary but mm -hmm. clearly there's still like there's still animators like that that they're offering experience to because I mean I guess this is always something with like new creative people is is that you forget how much of creativity and creating a finished product is keeping a schedule, knowing how to do very practical things. Here's how you sell to an exec. Here's how you organize the writing of an episode or, or how, here's like the process that we're going to go through in order to make this a smooth transition and require hundreds of people to work together and all that stuff. And that without that, shit would fall apart. Yeah, I think like... In, in in times where you have a lot of and this is something that like I've taken note of in like sort of my more like activism work, um, something that's very underrated, but very key to having any kind of success when you have that sort of like young blood environment where you've got a lot of young people with new and exciting ideas is having a few older experienced people who are like also themselves visionary and open-minded to, you know, provide support and guidance to the younger people. And Larry Lakeletter is that exact, like from what it seems from all the his work history, like I don't know anything about him as a person, he seems to be that kind of guy. Very experienced, older, but open-minded, interested in hearing and working with, like hearing from and working with these young people and their new ideas, providing that level of guidance, that support, that experience, that expertise. I wonder how many people sometimes mistake an older person going, hey, we should really think about this with a rejection of like new people's ideas as opposed to, I like this idea, but we really need to work on its implementation. I, I, I think pretty often. <laughs> Which is kind of a shame. I, I it think really is. the energy that's behind new ideas is sometimes, I, I don't know, like it, it's intoxicating or it's hard to slow down. But 
the the experienced people just want to make it work, y'all. They like don't don't like allow your rightful you know, desire to bring in like new ideas and fresh perspectives blind you to the fact that a lot of older people do have things to show you and teach you, you know, and are valuable in a lot of ways. As we age, we are still valuable. A, PS <laughs> yes, exactly. a PSA from Animades. <laughs> uh, so uh, there are, aside from like, a lot of these creative talents behind the show. Um, the show ran for 10, like 10 seasons on Cartoon Network is a big deal. That alone is really a testament to its popularity with the right age groups. Typically speaking, shows don't last that long on Cartoon Network. No. Like, it's not like Nickelodeon, where they'll just say, like, this is working, let's run it for 30 years. Um, Nick, like, Cartoon Network is infamously cancel-happy. Yeah, which, again, this is one of those things where, like, are they, are they skittish, or are they attempting to remain innovative, to give space to new properties? But, maybe... Maybe it has to do with, like, the Hanna-Barbera influences on Cartoon Network, where they, they just run a show in a fairly straightforward way, and so it becomes stale very fast. Mm -hmm. And they have to generate a new show. Like, it just seems to me that, like, Hanna-Barbera has always been a little bit more quantity over quality. Yeah, I think if you think about like the cartoon cartoon era shows that we discussed, they were really excellent. And there were that was another generation of these really talented animators. But they were like very straightforward and a little bit formulaic. And, you know, how much longer could Dexter's Lab have really gone on without becoming incredibly stale? Right. Um, but then thankfully you get and there are some shows that. Cartoon Network infamously canceled while they were very popular and definitely had a lot more places that they could go. Um, but thankfully, with with Adventure Time and with regular show as well, they recognized that there was there was a lot of story that these people wanted to tell and that they had they needed space and time to do it. And they recognized that these programs were beloved enough that audiences were willing to give them that space and time, and so the network did as well. I think that what we see now is that Cartoon Network is into long form now. Yes, for sure. They definitely yeah. embrace the idea that if you have a quality property, long form is beneficial to them. Yeah, and it's one of those things, something, and we'll get more into this later because we do want to spend some time talking about the cast, but... Adventure Time, something like Adventure Time, when you look at the places that it goes, it's natural to wonder when you look at the beginning, did they always intend to go there? And there's a lot of stuff in the first two seasons of, of Adventure Time where you can look at it and say, yeah, I think that they did. I think that they really did always intend to go there. Um, maybe, maybe not 
specifically exactly where they ended up or maybe not specifically exactly how they got there. But there were definitely really big things that happened late in the show that you look at seasons one and two and you're like, they always meant for that to happen. That wasn't the plan. A good example of this apparently is they the idea that the world was going to be post-apocalyptic didn't happen until the businessman episode. Really? Yeah. So before that, it was just going to be like magical D&D world. But the businessman episode apparently changed everything for the way that they were approaching the story. Really interesting because that becomes such a huge key part of the show. Like key to the world. Okay. You know what? Let's, we want to give, we want to give the really excellent voice actors here their space and we want to we want to have some time to talk to the characters like the world really is a character in this show and so i want to but i want to give everybody the space that they deserve <laughs> um, so let's try and talk about these voice actors and characters a little bit first and then we can start to get more into the world um so finn you know this the show's technically called adventure time with finn and jake that so we have a couple of titular characters here finn um who starts the series as a 12 year old Human boy, uh, voiced by Jeremy Shada, actual child at the time. Um, he's a young man now. I think he's a few years younger than me, basically. Um, and he gives a really incredible performance, actually. Jake the dog and Finn the human. They, they always really emphasize physical identity in this show. Mm-hmm. That, actually, that's a really... Uh, so characters are typically signified with their name and then their species, essentially. Yes. Finn the, the dog, Finn the human, Marceline the vampire queen. Princess you know, Bubblegum. Bubblegum. Bubblegum's the surname, but like... Who is yeah. literally made of bubblegum. Yeah, she's a candy person. Cinnamon bun. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, root beer guy. <laughs> <laughs> Lemon grab. Yeah, for sure. So, like, physical identity is something that's important in this show. Um, and, you know, Finn is apparently the only human in the world uh, when, we, when we first encounter him. And so that is a very important part of his identity. And everyone always identifies him as, as a human boy. And that's something that remains a very important part of his identity as the show goes on and his character develops. Um, Jeremy Shada, despite being a child actor, like very, is a very talented voice actor who gives a really excellent performance. Um, his voice changes significantly. <laughs> Like throughout the show, he starts out like with like a little boy voice. He has a 12 year old boy's voice throughout seasons two and three. His voice noticeably cracks frequently when um, throughout the show, especially Finn screams a lot and he does like screams. There's a lot of voice cracking going on. And then by the end of the show, his voice has lowered um, quite a bit to to a young man's voice. Yeah, he his his screams are very good. They're excellent. Squeals, you might mm-hmm. say. The um, voice cracking brings a lot to it, honestly. Yeah. So, um, 
Jay, so the, the main two characters, Finn and his brother, Jake the dog. So Jake, Finn was an orphan and he was adopted by Jake's parents. So Jake is not just a dog. He's a magical talking dog. Every, everything talks in this world. In fact, this world is sort of animistic, but I'll talk about that later. But mm -hmm. um, Jake is a magical dog, and he can stretch his body. He can freely contort his body, and it is the most versatile power, like, in the show. So Jake is voiced by John DiMaggio. So those of you who are familiar with Futurama will... Recognize him as the voice of Bender. Um, John DiMaggio, a very prolific voice actor. He's been around for a while. Yeah, for um, sure. Also notably Dr. Draken in Kim Possible. He He's really known for that gruff, acerbic, manly yes. voice. For sure. Yeah, a really, he, he, he's one of those people who just like has an interesting voice. So a lot of the times he doesn't like, do that much with it so you know and if you're familiar with his roles as bender or jake the dog you might not think he has like a ton of range but he actually does like he did like i recently rewatched kim possible and he does a lot of voices in kim possible and i did not realize initially that he was dr draken because he does something interesting with his voice there um so he's another like you know we have our legends of voice acting and i would say that uh, he's one of them, you know, he's, he's very prolific and very well known and very talented. Yeah. But no Kath Susie or, um, oh my gosh, who's the other one? <laughs> there are, Tara, Tara Strong. Tara Strong. Tara Strong actually is in this. She just doesn't have a large role. There's a lot of, uh, she does background stuff kind of a lot. Um, um another one. <laughs> Another one. So Jake um, and Finn own, well, Bemo. I love talking about yes. Bemo. Bemo's amazing. Um, <laughs> Bemo is a computer, like a small computer console that walks around and does stuff. And Bemo is voiced by Nikki Yang, who is amazing. And yeah. her eyes herself actually an animator but she just like i think that she got into voice acting initially for this show where she voices both bemo and lady rainicorn yeah she's she's got this beautiful soft melodic voice and i love i'm obsessed with her accent for bemo yeah definitely so she is she's actually korean so she does speak english with a korean accent um and I actually think that a lot of her her voice acting has gotten a lot of people in the United States more used to hearing a Korean accent, which is really cool. Um, so she, when she plays Lady Rainicorn, she speaks Korean. Um, but she also has now gone on to voice Candy in Gravity Falls and uh, Chloe's mom in We Bear Bears. Um, I assume she's in other stuff too, but that's just where I know her from and she's her voice is very distinctive you know if you've watched adventure time you will recognize like oh hey that's bemo when you watch other stuff uh i'm just looking at her as well something that we didn't say like cal arts is really to thank for this show i know that's a yeah, weird thing sure. to say but a lot of these people are from cal arts 
Yeah, including Nikki Yang. So it's one of those things where uh, academic, it's one of those things that I would tell to a college student, going to college is about more than just learning for, uh, like, learning is the primary reason you should go to college, but when people talk about networking, this is like a prime example of mm -hmm. how an institution is a platform where certain networking environments develop and they can be surprisingly important for future opportunity. And this is just like, well, all these people went to CalArts around the same times. So there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so then we have Ice King, who for in seasons one and two, Ice King appears to be the primary antagonist. Um and continues throughout the series to be sort of like a friend antagonist, <laughs> um, uh, if you can say. But he is uh, sort of like crazy old ice wizard. And he is voiced by another legend, Tom Kenny, uh, who is SpongeBob and the mayor from Powerpuff Girls. And, like, half of the voices you've heard in animation since 1995. Voice acting legend. Yes, absolutely. Again, very talented, very prolific. Um, Hayden Walsh, Walsh is a voice actor for Princess Bubblegum. I love... All of the voice actors in the show are great. They, they all fit their roles very, very well. And Princess Bubblegum, mm -hmm. the princess, the, the autocrat of the Candy Kingdom. I know you're probably not used to hearing the word autocrat stated with something like the Candy <laughs> Kingdom. But Prince, Princess Bubblegum is a tyrant in the Greek sense. And she's a sociopath. <laughs> I think she's a sociopath. I agree. That's not super apparent in seasons one and two, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, definitely. And um, she also, she has a very delicate feminine voice, which fits very well with the character. And then we have Olivia Olsen voicing Marceline and she's like less like, you know, these women are less prolific. Um, she's, she did some acting for, Phineas and Ferb, but she'll probably be more notable because she has a really beautiful singing voice that she uses a lot um, for Marceline. And that is also shows up in some other, you know, she, she her voice shows up singing and in, in Steven Universe and, and things like that. That's really the main cast for the most part. That's 80% of the show. But it's also important to note that Pendleton Ward does a decent amount of voice acting, mostly side characters, but he's just got this, uh, I love it, like this deadpan, like, hey guy, what you doing guy? He is yeah. this way of speaking that is very, very adventure time. Does he voice Shelby? Who does Shelby? I think, I think he does voice Shelby. Yeah, who is a worm that lives in Jake's viola, um, who becomes more of a character as the show goes on. And uh, Maria Bamford does a lot of work for Adventure Time. You know, uh, I think her first big role is the uh, Donut Witch 
There's everywhere. <laughs> who who voices the magic man? I don't know who voices. Let me let me look that up right now because he does show up in season. It's Tom two. Kenny. It's to, it of course Tom it's Kenny. of course it's Tom Kenny. Yeah, Magic Man only shows up one time in seasons one and two, but he later becomes a very important character. And I'm sure we will discuss the Magic Man episode when we get to later in the ep- like later in the show and talk about some more random things. Um, Magic yeah, so- Man. Maria Bamford does a lot of work. A lot of the female characters who are, you know, more one-offs are voiced by Maria Bamford. And she does a lot of, like, background voicing and stuff, too. As well as Mark Hamill. Um, Mark Hamill voiced the Fear Feaster and also does a lot of sort of background character work for Adventure Time. Um, So Maria Bamford, she's um, not actually well-known for voice acting. She's a well-known comedian. And Mark Hamill, we've discussed many times. <laughs> you and, all know who Mark Hamill is. And then they do a variety of voice guest actors, too, that are big people. So, for example, The Lich is voiced by Ron Perlman. Oh, I never noticed that. Hell yeah. Yeah, Finn. Finn. He's got that beautiful villain voice. I love it. It's, oh, God. Yeah, it gives me goosebumps, man. And then, um, what's his face? Not the Cosmic Owl. I think the Cosmic Owl is voiced by Pendleton Ward. Oh, but Prismo, Prismo is Prismo. voiced by Kamal Nanjiani. Yeah. So there are some great yeah. voice guest voice actors that get into the mix oh, as well. Pendleton Ward also voices um, Lumpy Space Princess. Lumpy Space Princess. Hey, I got my lumps. My lumps. <laughs> it's okay. lumps, lumps, but you can have them. <laughs> Lumpy Space Princess is a mood. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, like yeah. definitely a mood. So those are the main... Sure. All right, so big... There are tons of princesses. So I think in, in, a, in a very interesting way, the show is applying a fantasy trope and doing really fun things with it. So there's a princess for literally, like, everything. And they are... Their royal authority is very questionable. But nonetheless, they are labeled as being the only true princess, I feel like, is Princess Bubblegum. The rest of them are, like, rule over a single hut or a castle, whereas Bubblegum has an entire... It's very medieval Germany. Like, there's lots of, like, insy little principalities all over the place, right? Yeah, but everybody knows that Bubblegum is, like, in charge like i used to think that too but having watched it like several times now i think like no there are limits to the candy kingdom and while i guess like princess bubblegum bubblegum is one of the like oldest rulers and she's clearly very respected like i think her authority is ultimately limited to the candy kingdom like she can't make the breakfast princesses do anything you know that's fair and i mean i guess marceline is a queen and she has the most innate power marceline okay i love the way they do vampires in this show because they're essentially like they're not just vampires they're essentially like eldritch gods yeah but like that's also complicated with marceline because 
really what we learn, what we look, we absorb over time <laughs> that Marceline's dad is essentially the devil. Like he's the king of hell pretty much. And, but her mom was a normal human and that she wasn't born as a vampire. She became a vampire. So she, like, it seems already had some of her powers when she was born, but others of them came from becoming a vampire. And I guess the Flame Kingdom is pretty serious, like, pretty powerful, too. They yeah. have actual soldiers, and they are, you know, fire. So, um, Ice King is ostensibly the main antagonist in a lot of ways, but not in other ways. Like, the Lich is definitely the biggest. So, we don't, the, the, we can sort of get into the story of the show here as we segue into, like, the setup is really 11-minute episodes that involve self-contained stories. And you osmose a lot of world-building through those episodes. And the show does not start as a story arc show. Really, it only starts to deal with overarching big issues at the end of season two. So the first two seasons are mostly a lot of like learning about characters, learning about the world, and gags. It really did kind of just start out as a wacky, absurdist show with tons of D&D &D tropes, and, like, it's essentially written as a D&D &D Brothers Grimm-style game. Almost. Uh, there's, like, and there's a lot of influences from, like, video games and comic books you know it's like it's sort of like a nerd culture mishmash almost and finn is essentially just like running around trying to be a hero even though he's a child and really the only reason he survives is because of jake but it's just sort of them getting into a bunch of misadventures while trying to be heroes and Later on in the show, big things will start to happen. But for now, yeah. like, it's mostly set up. Like, the Enchiridion shows up in the first season. We meet mm -hmm. Billy in the second season. We meet I think, is Billy, like, a very early episode of season two or a very late episode of season one? Uh, that's a good question. I don't actually, I think. It doesn't really matter. It's somewhere in there. <laughs> We, we get, like, the world is peppered with clues, like, there's a bunch of technology that's damaged and ruins lying around that really hint at this world is left with the refuse of a previous world sort of stuff. So we get a lot of ideas, but no confirmations of anything. Yeah, and even the intro to the show, like, does a lot of heavy lifting, you know, because at the very, like, we zoom in on something that looks like Earth from space, and it turns, and there's a massive chunk of the planet missing. And then we zoom in further, and we immediately see a desolate hilltop littered with human bones and... um unexploded 
bombs with nuclear radiation symbols on them. And it's only after that, when we zoom in further, that we encounter Marceline and begin to encounter like the magical elements of uh, of the land of Ooh. It's juxtaposed very immediately with like the the Candy Kingdom and they're dancing and singing a song. So mm-hmm. it's definitely a show of contrasts, yes. and <laughs> the the contrasts do a lot of work. So really, yes, like story wise. There's not a ton of talk to talk about. Um, a lot of times the show is built on the idea of an assumption for an episode, and then that assumption is messed with a lot. So, for example, the Magic Man episode is so good because oh it starts so where Finn and Jake are running around trying to be heroes, and they run into a like a person who is ostensibly a beggar, and he's like, you got some food. You got some food. And Finn is like, man, we should really help this guy out. And Jake is like, nah, man, he looks weird. And Finn is like, I'm a hero. I help people. That's what I do. And so Finn gives the guy a sugar cube. And it turns out, and and, and Finn is like, this guy's going to like secretly be a magical elf who's going to grant us wishes. And the dude transforms into like this wizard guy and (laughs) Finn is like hell yeah and the wizard is like you deserve a reward and he turns Finn into a giant foot and it's just like a giant giant like foot and ankle and Finn's like torso is hanging out of the front of it and so uh, Finn is like change me back And the magic man goes, not until you appreciate how much of a jerk I am. And then he zips away, just being like, magic! And the whole... He makes the sky say, eat it, in twinkly lights. The The whole episode is basically teaching you that, just like, this guy's a fucking jerk. And that's the moral of the story, is that the magic man is an asshole. Yeah, Finn keeps trying to find a moral, and there's no moral. It's just that the magic man's a fucking dick, you know? And that's one of the aesthetic qualities of the show that I really like, is that so much of what we've seen in previous shows in the past have been sometimes a very contrived attempt to instantiate a moral into the story. Mm -hmm. And Adventure Time does not do that. No, no. If anything, it says there is no moral, right? That's the absurd part, not the, oh, haha, this doesn't make sense, but like the the actual definition of absurdity, which is like facing the meaninglessness inherent in the world. Yeah, and it's interesting because our protagonist, Finn, is someone who's like very moral and has a strong sense of right and wrong and struggles with the nuances of that throughout the show, right? But I think ultimately, if there's any moral heart to Adventure Time, it would be the idea that, like, helping people who are helpless is a good thing. Like, being kind and trying to help others is good, even if it ends up badly for you. You know, like, the like trying matters. But also... Being good does not mean the world will be good back to you. 
Yes, very much so. And I think that also a lot of like what lessons there are in this show for for children or for people in general about how you should interact with the world or live your life are more related to interpersonal relationships. You know, like this doesn't come up as much in the first couple of seasons, though it does some. Um, and it comes up more and more as the show goes on and Finn grows up and has to face these issues more. But just like, how do other people deserve to be treated? How do you navigate difficult situations in your relationships with other people? How do you realize that you did something wrong, grow, and then apologize to another person for that? And how do you not expect that that apology means that everything will then be okay between you and that other person, you know? Yeah. And I think that there are some episodes where the difference is, is that previous shows, with the exception of something like Hey Arnold, which did not, Hey Arnold taught moral lessons through the living of like a real life. And in that sense, the morals were never, like never really felt contrived. They were inherent in the situation as it existed. They didn't have to be shoehorned in in any way adventure time does do that sometimes um for example there's an episode where finn tries to help a mountain who is crying because a bunch of people are wrestling their play wrestling but the mountains like these guys are being so mean to each other and i have to watch it and it makes me so sad and so finn so finn tries to help two groups of people at once and the the episode is basically a meditation on helping people who want things that are at odds with one another and the difficulty that comes with trying to be thoughtlessly compassionate and basically giving a solution that you think works, but, but may not work for the people that you're trying to help. And also the idea that if you try to help everybody, you're going to find out that you can't do that usually like they're it's not as easy as wanting to help everybody because people want inherently oppositional things and and finn does end up able at the end he helps like a dozen different individuals or groups get what they need and he he gets a good solution for all of them but i think it's important to note that when he was able to help all those people it's when he reached out for help himself it was through like teamwork that he got everything done and managed to get a solution that everyone could be happy with. And interestingly, I found myself agreeing with Jake in that episode where Jake was just like, Finn, like these guys, like everybody here is just being very unreasonable. You should just let that be. I kind of found myself being like, yeah, I think that's fair. Like, if people want help, but they're essentially, like, not accounting for you in that situation in some ways, like, you're just giving all of yourself for people who will never be satisfied. And I I don't, like, 
I think there's value in Jake's opinion too. I think there is too. And I think like the mountain in particular is being very unreasonable in this episode. And I think a way that really shows that the writers also think he's being unreasonable is when the potential solution is to like, we'll turn you around so you just don't have to see it anymore. And he's like, okay, that seems fine. Is like, as long as you all promise me that you won't have a rough house again. And everyone's like, yeah, sure. Whatever, dude. So there, there are cases where morals pop up, but other times like Jake is a very interesting character and it's very apparent in this first season. He's basically amoral. Like Jake, Jake, Jake is good because Finn is good. Jake is a prime example, in my opinion, he's a prime example of a true neutral alignment. He's, like, also, like, not always, but he's often, like, pure id. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's not evil, because evil comes with intention. Like, in the classic D&D... Okay, I'm using D&D alignments because the show uses D&D alignments. Like, Jake is like, I'm, like, I'm, I'm neutral good. Like, they make specific references to the D&D alignment system, so Jake... Yeah, like, um, Finn at one point says, like, I can't do that, it doesn't fit with my alignment. So Jake, Jake is a true neutral character who just acts in his own self-interest, and that usually happens to align with Finn. Um, yeah, I think something, I'm not sure if the joke was made in seasons one or two, but something that becomes like a running joke in the show is that Jake will be like, I used to do some like fucked up or bad thing. And Finn's like, what the hell? And Jake's like, I didn't know it was wrong. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, to be fair, a ton of ooh is essentially true neutral or chaotic neutral. Like, oh God, yeah, I would say like, honestly, Magic Man, chaotic neutral. Best example of a chaotic neutral character. So it, there are innately "quote unquote" evil things in the land of Ooh, but morals are surprisingly lacking in almost every environment. Really, like Finn, people are good to each other in their in- interpersonal relationships, but they people do not really abide by higher moral principles in this world and i mean like i think so princess bubblegum is a very complex character who the longer you know her the more you're like uh what the fuck um and i think you know the very first episode is slumber party panic and it starts with (laughs) finn and princess bubblegum are in the graveyard raising dead candy people from the dead (laughs) Yeah, she almost, I would almost call her lawful evil. She she does bad things. She does bad things, and it's like, I think, when we learn about, like, Princess Bubblegum's history, I don't think, she doesn't, like, do the bad things out of a desire to hurt other people. She does bad things because she has a pathological need for control and her need for control has like completely subverted her moral sense. Like her moral sense is like entirely surface level because she can't like she can only know like well technically 
this is right and this is wrong when it requires any thought like it all just gets overwhelmed by the fact that she needs to be in control of everything yeah and the um i mean it almost the show seems to almost imply through finn that humans are the moral i don't know like morals are um, we meet we we eventually meet other humans and they're as like complex and amoral and bad as anybody else in ooh it's finn specifically who has a hero's heart you know like that's very clear like finn has a hero's heart he has heroic dna like they say and like he like is he is the moral center of the world um because of who he is um, because like pretty much all the other humans that we meet are also like bad people or, um, if not bad, then people who do really fucked up shit because of things that have happened to them. Just like, you know, princess bubblegum does. Okay. Okay. That's fair. Um, <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, <laughs> other than that, I think, gosh, what is there to say about the first two seasons? It's so funny. So much fun. Like yeah. that, I rewatching the show is really instilled. Like the show is so funny. The, they intermix potty and gag humor with really profoundly. One of my favorite things is that they juxtapose profound things with immediate, the opposite of that. So, I'm trying to think of a good example of this, but there's a episode later in the show where Bimo falls in love with a bubble, and then she saves the bubble, and it pops at the very end of the episode, and it's like, whoa, what the fuck just happened? Um, and then the bubble's like, I was air and I'm free now to always be with you forever and ever. (laughs) And, and it's, it's things that, okay. The best way I can put it is that things that should be revered or of people in the real world give great meaning and consideration to are immediately followed by an act that subverts or negates the thing that is to be revered. Yes, I agree completely. And it's also a thing that I'm having a hard time thinking of a specific example of. But yes, that's a very big part of the of the humor of the show. Like, you know, like they use Jake farting to do that a lot in the first two seasons. And farts become a little less common. But like basically like something profound will happen and then like Jake will fart. <laughs> you know? And it's, um, it's essentially, like, that's, that's the absurdism of the show, right? You, this thing that you think is profound or meaningful is, it's not that it isn't, but it's very easily covered by the world. Like, yeah. the world doesn't care about it, in the sense that, like, it could happen, and then the next moment somebody's literally shitting on it. Yeah. Like... So also another thing that happens in the first two seasons is that they're like 
so we were talking about it before. I'm like, they have little boy energy. Like Finn is a little boy. And so he interacts with the world in a way, in the way that a little boy does. You know, he his he doesn't have like super complex conceptions of other, he conceives of them as other people, but not super complexly. Um, he approaches everything with like really boundless energy and generally a pretty black and white sense of things. And much like, um, you know, another media product that many people of our generation are familiar with, Harry Potter, he ages as the show goes on and the maturity of the show moves apace with that. So, like, his relationships with other people become more complex. And as that happens, we spend more time individually with those people and learn more about them. And the way that he interacts with the world becomes more mature. Uh, and the little boy energy kind of lessens as time goes on. But even though the little boy energy is really strong in the first two seasons, and it's very slapsticky, and there's lots of funny butts and farts and things like that, there's still like sneaking in stuff that becomes very important later on from very early on. So, for example... The true primary antagonist of Adventure Time for the vast majority of the season is the Lich or the Lich King. And actually, he's mentioned for the first time in the episode where they meet Billy because there's a hilarious like rock song about Billy and how great he is. And it mentions who cast the Lich King down and it shows the Lich. Um, and he doesn't come back up again until the very end of season two. But like... You know, and I think it's late season one where they meet Billy. They're already bringing up the Lich. Or, um, so something that people really liked for the first two seasons of Adventure Time is there's always a snail in every episode and he always waves. Well, that kind of goes away after a while because the snail becomes the servant of the Lich. And in fact, the Lich even inhabits the snail. So, in season three when you see the snail you're not as much like oh hey there's the snail you're like oh god the lich you know the snail is in every episode like for a frame a skeleton for a frame oh wow i never like there are lots of skeletons but i didn't realize there was always a skeleton for at least a frame in every episode oh no the snail like there's this the snail is in every episode there also is a skeleton in every episode that, that, that is also a true statement. <laughs> so, um, and then, okay, so... Finn's they start arm. Intro- uh, yeah, go ahead. Finn's arm. You can, you can talk about Finn's arm. Well, I was going to say that they also start introducing big, high-minded creature concepts. So, the cosmic owl, the death, mm. like, death, Finn battles death. Um... They, they really start elevating the idea that this is not just a world of funny things, but of, like, big, like, spirits and physical concepts and madness. Like, really big conceptual things. Yeah, definitely. The, the uh, Cosmic Owl is in, like, the third episode. It's when Ice King's thinking about it, and he's like, why don't people like me? And then the Cosmic Owl shows up and says, you're a... <laughs> that's right oh poor ice king you learn uh, things about ice king that make every in- interaction with him very sad 
Yeah, dude. Yesterday I was watching Adventure Time and Blake was in the room and it was an Ice King centric episode. And I paused and was like, so let me tell you about why Ice King seems goofy if you watch episodes in isolation, but actually he's incredibly tragic. And like everything about him is so, so sad. (laughs) Yeah, so sad. They even start to hint at that with the Wizard Eyes episode. Because you see, like, like, sometimes you get crazy old wizard eyes. (laughs) He's just like, they're always there. Always. And you're like, oh. Oh. No. Oh, no. Yeah, when he literally says, like, some when you got crazy old wizard eyes, sometimes you don't know what's real and what's not. But Finn's arm... Well, okay, so Finn's arm, let's just say it, let's just get it out of the way. Um, much, much later in the series, I think it's in season seven, Finn loses his arm. Um, and there's a lot that I want to talk about with that, but it doesn't happen until a lot later. So we'll address that then. What I want to talk about now is they start alluding to the fact that Finn will lose his arm in season one. Is it Chris? Yeah, it might even be episode one. Yeah, because you say the first time... Now, I didn't first notice it until season three in the King Worm episode. Um, But you said that there's a fantasy sequence in which he's imagining himself as like a big hero in which he has like a mechanical arm, right? Yeah, and I think even before that, there's... There's another reference to it. I can't remember it off the top of my head. But in each season, there is one reference to it. Yeah, basically, at at least one reference to it in each season. And that's something that, like, I didn't ever notice that before that happened. And then rewatching it, it's glaring that they were like, Finn was always going to lose his arm. It was fated, you know? They've been telling us that Finn was going to lose his arm from the very beginning. So clearly they do set up some things that were going to happen, even if some things didn't come into their minds later on. Yeah, definitely. I think, like, with a show like this, with such a sprawling world, you know, you doubt that, like, exactly the way that it ended and exactly the way that it got there was always in their mind from the beginning. But I think that there are certain key things that happen throughout the series even things that happen much much later that they clearly always intended things like finn losing his arm or the lich being a really big deal big bad you know these are clearly things that they were thinking about from the very beginning things that i want to take away from the first two seasons are Lemon Grab is not here yet. Which is a real shame. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um <laughs> lots of witches. We the witch episodes are always really funny. Yeah, in the first two seasons, the only women that exist basically are princesses or witches. Um and all the witches like end up doing bad things to Jake. One witch takes away his powers and he has the body of like a of a fat little man. And then like undies. And the other one is he's getting sucked into 
her okay. bottomless bottom. Okay, so I want to. There, there's sexual content in this show. Yeah. Yes, there is. And and there's a moment where Finn essentially gets cummed on by a snail. Sorry, a slug. Oh my god! Yeah. Um, the sad. The juice. the whole slug. Well, no. At the end of that episode, the slug is kissing and making out with another slug, and off screen, like you see Finn in close up, and off screen, this juice shoots out from the two of them onto Finn. Oh, gross! Um, in, in that same episode. A bunch of snails are backing their butts, which are very clearly well-defined, into this snail. That whole episode is very sexual. Jake, um, you can't go in there. You'll get crushed or grinded on. So, the, they're, like... There are just things that happen that involve intimacy, adult intimacy, that are very irreverent and just shrouded enough that kids wouldn't get it. But it's... I don't know. There's some stuff that happens. It's kind of gross. Yeah, there, there is an episode... There is an episode where there is essentially sexual assault. Or at least sexual harassment. Um, it's where... It's the episode where... Are you talking about the second Ricardio episode? Yes. Yeah, Ricardio shows up in season one or two, but the like episode you're thinking of is is later on. But yeah, absolutely. Well, no, there's also like they force people to kiss. Oh, Finn forces like Finn forces a goose and a fox to kiss. Yeah, Booba and, Fina and Mr. Fox. He forces them to kiss. Okay, her name is Booba Fina. <laughs> number one. And he, like, forces them to kiss. And she's, like, traumatized because of it. He is. She's like, Mr. Goose will never want me because now I'm soiled. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh, oh that, okay, that, that's definitely what I was thinking about. I was just like, oh, my God. Christ Almighty! Wow. So there, there, there are things that come up that just make you go kind of like, "What the fuck, guys?" Yeah, for sure. I've also heard it alleged before that playing the viola is a classical euphemism for sex. Um, I've heard I have that. not been able to confirm that, but I have heard it, which brings new depth to the fact that, like, Jake often meets up with Lady Radicorn, his girlfriend, to play viola. <laughs> they clearly have sex because they have babies later. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lady Rain, like one of the last things I'll say, Lady Rainicorn and the Rainicorn Dog Wars. Excellent. <laughs> also, how it turns out, apparently, a traditional food for Rainicorns is humans. And they Finn eats soy human, and he likes it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> And the final shot of the episode is just his smiling face. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's not a ton left for me to say about this season. Like, I could go on and on, but we're we're nearing, I feel, a good stopping point to transition into... Yeah. Transition I could just into. go on about... Sorry. Oh, go ahead. 
I could just go on about every excellent joke that I remember or whatever, but that like that's not of particular use. Like you can watch the show to do that. And like we said, there's not like a ton of plot stuff or um a ton of character development to be had in seasons one and two. It's more establishing. Yes. So next time we can go into stuff like that when we get start to get into the main story. But otherwise this is a good place for us to leave the wonderful even at the beginning the show is a 10 out of 10 oh absolutely yeah yeah even before it gets all deep still just really excellent and entertaining i have like they couldn't have stuck the landing better at the beginning than they did yeah absolutely absolutely um, but yeah, so like the next episode, we're going to be covering material primarily from seasons three and four. So if you want to watch along with us, you know, um, you know, watch seasons one through four and like you can be right up to date with where we're at. I am happy to be back again. So hopefully we'll be doing this semi-regularly, assuming that after next, after November things haven't exploded we never we don't know at this point we really don't know so mm-hmm. we'll be here i i suppose hopefully one way or another yeah for Ho- sure hopefully in um, a good way so, <laughs> yeah expect uh our second episode on adventure time much more expediently than this one came um but yeah generally i think uh that about wraps it up so in that case uh i've been Paige, and i've been chris and this has been animates as always please uh rate review and subscribe to the podcast it helps other people find the show and that is our fondest wish we are also on facebook and twitter as animates on twitter and animates podcast on facebook Uh, You can follow us there and get occasional updates and interact with other people who listen to the show. You can also email us at animates at gmail.com with the numeral eight in there instead of the letters A-T. And as always, thank you so much for listening.